0: Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Doing live in-person events is off the table for a while, but we're still doing conversations with Californians doing groundbreaking things during this pandemic time. So here is our new podcast series, The New Normal in California. Over the next few weeks, or however long it takes before we get the all clear to leave our houses again, we'll be looking at the ways our coronavirus-affected lives are changing over the short and long term and talking with Californians making significant change in this new normal. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep producing more of these, consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud Podcast Hub page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In this first episode, we're taking a look at the coronavirus that sparked a global pandemic, where it started and why, and what can we do as humans to stop this kind of thing from happening again? To help us understand all of that, we're talking to Dr. Christine kruder johnson a professor of epidemiology at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine who studies animal-to-human transmission of viruses. Last week, her new study about that type of viral transmission was published in a prestigious research journal, and it is already the most downloaded study in that publication's 105-year history. Join us for a conversation with Christine Johnson about animals, humans, how they mix, how that leads to deadly pandemics, and how there is still hope for reducing them if we make significant changes to the way we live today.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers and our new type of virtual events, a remote and recorded from home podcast series called Coronavirus in California, Is This the New Normal? My name is Vanessa Richardson. I am your host for this series. I'm also the executive director of California Groundbreakers. So this pandemic is going to keep us sheltered in place for a while with more time on our hands to read the news, actually watch the TV news, and to listen to more podcasts like this that focus on coronavirus and the serious, sometimes lethal threat of COVID-19. I think many of us know by now at least the basics of this coronavirus and COVID-19. What are the symptoms? Who's at higher risk? What we all need to do to flatten the curve? And we may have coronavirus news fatigue. I admit I do a little bit. And mostly I feel a little sad, a little depressed and anxious about what all of us in the world right now are facing and what the future holds for us. But still, I do read the news, and I can't help but notice the number of Californians mentioned in the news articles who are doing ground stri- groundbreaking stuff right now in this pandemic, from a governor and his efforts to keep the number of coronavirus cases low here, to healthcare workers and medical experts doing life-saving treatments and research, to individuals who are stepping up to help others, keep things going, and make change that will have short-term and long-term effects in California. So that's why we started this podcast series. And basically, it's about this. How will this pandemic change our lives over the short and long-term? And who are the Californians making the change in this new normal? So first up, we're taking a look at this coronavirus in a particular way. How did it get its start? and how will it hopefully meet its end. I read about a few people at the University of California at Davis, just down the road from us in Sacramento, whose jobs focus on answering those questions. And I was fortunate and lucky enough to have them agree to be interviewed. And honestly, I will admit, another reason for starting off our podcast with this topic has to do with Anthony Fauci, the now famous director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who's up there pretty much on a daily basis with President Trump during the White House briefings on the coronavirus. Like many people out there, I think he's the equivalent of a rock star in this time of pandemic. He's getting as much or more attention paid to him than any Kardashian sister. And I actually read today that people were circulating a petition to have People Magazine name him this year's sexiest man alive. So I, I honestly say I would vote for him and I do tune in to what he has to say every day. So I never thought in my life I would be so interested in epidemiology or immunology or virology, virology or even say those words as often as I do now. But I find those topics very interesting right now, and I am fascinated, personally interested, by what people working in those fields do and what they're doing now about COVID 19. So, for this first segment, how do we stop this type of coronavirus before it starts? We're talking with an epidemiology rock star at UC Davis who studies animal to human transmission of viruses. That's how COVID 19 pretty much got its start. Her name is Christine Kreuter Johnson, she is a professor of epidemiology and ecosystem health in the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis, and she directs the Epicenter for Disease Dynamics, and her research focuses on disease spillover and spread, epidemiology drivers of zoonotic disease transmissions, zoonotic disease is a new, probably new to you term that you'll know more about later as we talk, and ecosystem processes that impact wildlife population health and emerging infectious diseases. And this is good timing for this discussion, because Dr. Johnson authored a new study published just last week in a very big, very prestigious research publication, Proceedings of the Royal Society B about how, based on the way we live today it 's going to be very hard to stop the decline of wildlife species and the rise of emerging infectious diseases unless we do some pretty major stuff so we 're going to try and talk about that and uh, in, in plain English um, with Dr. Johnson. Um, or I'm just basically going to be conversational and call you Christine. Um, So thank you, Christine, for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Vanessa. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I always like to ask, I am always curious, again, how people get their start um, in a certain career in a certain field and where they got to where they were today. So in terms of epidemiology, it's such a, a very specific area. Not a lot of people uh, get into that field. So I wanted to know what sparked your interest in the field of epidemiology, how you got into that area, and particularly into zoonotic diseases.
2: Yeah, great. I'd be happy to talk about that. And First of all, no one's ever called me a rock star. Um, in fact, my start in this field um, comes from a very geeky place. Um, I've always been overly excited about science, really curious about the scientific approach, how we can understand patterns, um, put pieces together um, to inform on new processes. And so um, I really got interested in epidemiology from wanting to look at things from sort of that population, bigger, bigger level. And um, I initially, I got a veterinary degree from University of Pennsylvania, and I went out um, after working as an equine vet for many years. Um, I switched over to working on wildlife, and I had a job as a wildlife vet on Sanibel Island. And when you're a wildlife vet, the public brings in your patients, and you um, do your best to to take care of them, um, treat them, sometimes do surgery and then send them back out to the wild. And, um, and one thing that really sparked my interest early on was um, a lot of the public were bringing water birds to me with the same sort of neurologic symptoms. So they had, um, they had disease where they were basically dizzy and falling over and unable to fly and they were coming in in big numbers, and after a year or two of witnessing this, I got really curious as to what was happening here, and I tested them for all kinds of things, and there was nothing that we could uncover that was the root cause of of what was happening to them, even though they had the same symptoms, all of them, Um, and so, and a lot of them got better, and, and we were able to release them, but we started to, to sort of see what I thought maybe were seasonal patterns, and Um, With all the tests coming up negative and me being really frustrated, I started to put together data in big piles and try to wade through it and figure out, you know, how can I make sense of these patterns? Is it seasonal? What's it linked to? And there was no clear time of year that this was happening. And so um, kind of in my frustration, I I sought out a a degree. So I went and got a, a Ph.D., in epidemiology literally so I could understand this data. So I took this data with me, I came to the University of California Davis that had a really strong program in wildlife health. Um, and I worked at the Wildlife Health Center and with colleagues in ecology, and I was able to piece together these patterns are these sort of inter-annual variation in what was happening with these water birds to an underlying harmful algal bloom that was actually making the birds sick. And there was no trace of the disease in the birds at the time because we hadn't developed a test yet to be able to detect the toxin in the birds. And so it was really rewarding for me to be able to finally solve that puzzle and put together the study and work with collaborators. But once I saw um, and sort of had the the door opened to me of what the Wildlife Health Center was doing and all the work that they were doing um, to bring in big drivers at the ecosystem level and try to understand how that's affecting wildlife populations, I was basically hooked. And so I I spent a while um, working on wildlife problems um, for the state of California. And then many of us moved into public health, um, especially with the emergence of avian influenza and the recognition that that wild birds play a role in, in that disease and, and emergence of that disease. And so many of us wildlife veterinarians and wildlife epidemiologists were harnessed for um, pandemic threats. And we started to, to look more broadly at emerging diseases that originate in wildlife. And the training in epidemiology really makes it relatively easy for us to move between animal and public health. It's essentially what we call a one health degree where we look at animals and humans together um, and the same processes, the same sort of, what got me initially interested, that scientific method, is the same across species, so it doesn't matter. And the degree program at UC Davis is really strong. Um, and so I really think my training and what I was able to um, to learn here, that that really sparked a career that's just never-ending, um, exciting, and taking different twists and turns and solving different problems along the way. So that was a really long answer to your question.
1: <laughs> no, but that, that makes sense. Uh, because I think a lot of times when People hear the word epidemiology, like I've mentioned in my intro. It sounds like, oh, I'll never understand it. But my next question for you is one way that I did understand, or at least I think I understand, how um, zoonotic diseases, or you know, the the human to animal, the animal to human transmission of viruses and diseases spread, is by watching the movie Contagion. So for listeners, it's going to be. It's Spoiler alert, I'm going to give away the ending, the very ending, so you can skip ahead if you don't want to know, if you haven't seen it, but I think a lot of people are watching this this movie now, Contagion, directed by Steven Soderbergh, I think it came out in the uh, mid-2000s or so, but the ending is basically uh, a a series of images, Uh, a bat flying over a pig factory floor, and uh, bat droppings landing on... Uh, uh, through the slats of a roof onto the floor of a pig factory. And there's a pig. It ate the droppings. And then it cuts to a chef in a Hong Kong restaurant cutting up that pork, that pig, uh, cutting up the meat. And then he wipes his hands on his apron before going out to do a handshake with a very VIP who is played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, And then uh, I won't give it away anymore, but basically uh, we that starts that's day one and then the beginning of the movie contagion starts at day two to me i'm like okay now i i get a sense of how small little actions can build up into contagion in a pandemic so i was just wondering for you if i'm not sure if i gave the spoiler away but -hmm. if you've seen that movie and does that do a good job summing up uh that you know bat uh pig factory chef Wiping hands and aprons, shaking hands. Does that do a good job summing up how things like this start and spread?
2: Yeah, I think that movie, that very end of the movie, and I think the the way you describe it, you picked up on sort of what transpired there. But I think it's it's hard to tell. It's kind of dark and shadowy. It's try it's hard to tell what exactly is happening. But but that movie was basically informed on and based on the first emergence of Nipah virus in Malaysia, which happened in 1998 and epidemiologists and and, um, people who who actually worked on uncovering what happened with that outbreak informed on the movie set um, what this could look like and what could happen. Um, The big difference is that the epidemic that was in Malaysia didn't have human to human spread, and that's uh, spoiler alert. We won't go too far about what that really entails in the movie. Um, but, but there were over 200 cases of, of acute encephalitis that um, basically is, is, an, is a type of brain infection, um, and a number of people died, over 100 people died. Um, and people in Malaysia were primarily infected by close contact with pigs, which, um, which had huge implications for the pig farming industry in Malaysia. Um, so it was, it was pig farmers. Um, that that got infected and and so that close contact um with between the pig and in this case the chef um it is is very classic for disease transmission for zoonotic diseases what that movie also sort of unveiled that i that i do worry is sometimes lost on people is it starts out um you know with that very um kind of exciting music and and you can see the bulldozer coming in and the bulldozer is is knocking down a tree a, a, a probably a a palm tree of some kind where the bats normally roosted and the bats have to leave that environmental niche or that habitat and they end up setting up um, residence and roosting in trees that are right next to the pig farm. And so they're eating their fruit eating bats and they're eating fruit. Um, And in doing so, um, just like all of us are sloppy eaters, (laughs) they drop a little bit here and there. And that fruit that drops onto the floor is picked up by pigs. And it was actually Un- unveiled after many um, you know, years of research and in-depth investigations that habitat change and habitat loss that affects bat populations, um, especially fires that are used for slash and burn um, for, for for forest clearing play a role in movement of bat species. And then when you've got pig farms and you've got fruit trees, kind of this dual use of land um, for both agriculture, um, for livestock, as well as agriculture for, um, for growing crops, um, you're encouraging some of these species to come into closer contact. And so the, actual, the reservoir for Nipah virus is, is bats, and and that's where the virus emerged and spilled over to pigs and then got amplified in in pigs, and that's how people became infected. And and since then, Nipah has actually continued to spill over in Bangladesh, not again in Malaysia, which is really interesting, but another variant of Nipah virus has spilled over in Bangladesh, um, when palm sap is, is harvested from palm trees and there's been a lot of great research done that's been really fascinating by CDC and colleagues of ours at EcoHealth Alliance that have pushed, pulled together sort of um, how that um, disease has transpired and that variant of the virus has been human to human transmitted. So the movie Contagion kind of brings together the worst aspects of those two things um, and there you go. We won't tell any more.
1: Yes, it's still Definitely a, a a good movie to watch. It does seem more like a documentary these days than it does a uh, escapism movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but it's definitely definitely. I I watched it just two weeks ago, and it just it was really um, it was kind of scary and just how yeah little things uh, add up to a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And my next yeah. question for pandemics is these have been happening over the centuries. There was rabies, uh, the plague, dengue fever. It seems to me, though, it like a lot of these uh, zoonotic diseases have uh, come closer and closer together in the past, say, 20, 30 years. Um, in terms of like seeing them in the headlines and seeing them in the national and global news, AIDS in the 1980s Uh, Then in the 2000s, it was the terms SARS, avian flu, bird flu, H1N1. So these are common terms that a lot of people who are not epidemiologists know. And then now in most recent years, MERS uh, from Saudi Arabia in 2012, Ebola, Ebola. Uh, got its start in 2013, or at least made the headlines in 2013, so a lot of these are really clustered together. I was just wondering, you know, is there something when you're talking about um, the, like with contagion and what happened there, those conditions, are those reasons for why a lot of these um, zoonotic diseases have been happening so close together in recent years, and are there common, are, are there common traits and connections among those most recent ones that are notable?
2: Yes, such a good question and so relevant for today. Um, You're right that we have seen infectious diseases emerging at a rate that is faster than ever. Um, And given the interconnectedness of people on the planet, it's more likely that we're going to recognize these. It's more likely that they're going to cause bigger epidemics and even pandemics. Um, And so I think just going back to some of the initial points, I mean, this, this has been happening for centuries, in fact, um, we tr- we trace the origin of most human infectious diseases back to when livestock were initially domesticated. So, you know, livestock were at one time wild animals. They were brought into close contact and um, and and brought up next to people. And basically at that time, a lot of the regular human pathogens that we think about, like measles and mumps as just human diseases, were actually um, probably more than likely zoonotic diseases that came over from animals to us. Um, and many of these diseases um, are just now evolving to or have totally evolved to just transmit among humans. We don't even think of them as zoonotic diseases anymore. They're just essentially human pathogens um, that move around um, at, at at some scale in the human population. And, and I think you brought up HIV, um, which causes AIDS, which is which is really a fascinating story, with you know still some questions, but some really good evidence that HIV was actually a zoonotic disease, that that originated in primates, um, that there's actually been multiple spillover events from different types of HIV, um, from different species of primates, um, only one of which ended up causing the AIDS pandemic. Um, And there's evidence going back all the way to 1908. Um, based on what we call the molecular clock. so looking at the evolution of that pathogen and and how um, it's accumulated its mutations over time. Um, probably the original emergence of that of that virus was was back in the early 1900s, and that's based on bank samples from the Democratic Republic of Congo um, that show that there's evidence of that virus circulating then. And of course, the first case of AIDS wasn't detected until nineteen eighty one. Um, then it wasn't discovered until 1984, um, that, that this, there, there, was actually this new virus, um, called HIV. And so it's, it's really important to note how long these things can percolate and go unnoticed for, for, for decades, even, um, um and especially in some populations that don't have a lot of access to healthcare. And I think, um. It's one thing that we sometimes think about um, with these pandemics and or epidemics. I'm, I'm really interested in how I feel like um, viruses don't get discovered oftentimes until a doctor gets infected. and then when a doctor's infected, they get, they get of course, the healthcare access and the, and the discovery that needs to happen to actually unravel what is this pathogen and, 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 and is it something new? And I think um, I think if we went back in time and looked over as we discover viruses, that, that is often the case. Um, because it's it's very hard to recognize um, spillover that doesn't affect a lot of people, um, and you and you bring up rabies as another good example. So rabies, this is not a this is not a virus that is human to human transmitted. Um, you actually need contact with an infected animal, typically a dog. Um, worldwide, rabies is a really important problem. It's what we call an endemic disease. It's routinely transmitted between animals and humans, um, and it's been very hard for for um, for different countries to actually address rabies and 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 get enough um, vaccination in the dog population to be able to to, to eradicate it and I think um, that's kind of at the other end of the spectrum that's a pathogen that is just regularly transmitted because of contact with animals and I think um, if we just wanted to herald some sort of warning um, the, the issue of disease emergence is really important because we are such a connected, uh, society. And if if diseases are emerging um, that are new on the planet, they're more than likely to cause a widespread, more than likely than ever to cause a widespread pandemic. Um, the risk is higher just because of the way we do travel and trade and we're a globalized community, which is really important for, for our well-being and for um, a lot of the gains that we've had in society. But it does mean that a disease that emerges you know, anywhere in the world um, is likely to be transmitted. So those those pathogens that move from animals to people um, that that we're naive to, and, and the reason why wildlife are such a common source for emerging infectious diseases is because these are new novel pathogens that we have no previous exposure to. And these viruses don't just drop in from outer space and they're not just created from nothing. They typically have evolved from viruses in animals and these viruses are either pre-adapted so that they can infect humans eventually or they're evolving to to adapt and infect humans and wildlife are you know thankfully a very rich biodiverse source of um of, of biodiversity on this on this planet and, and and they all have their own viruses and so some of those are are a little bit high risk. Most, most viruses in animals stay in animals. They're always going to stay in animals, but there's just a handful that on occasion will spill over. And when they do spill over because of our interconnectedness, um, it's certainly a higher risk than ever before. And All the diseases that you mentioned are zoonotic diseases. We've had um, certainly bats and rodents and primates play a big role in their spillover. And, um, and and some of these species are globally ad- abundant, and they're sharing habitat with us, and and the other species are are you know overexploited and hunted, and, and so um, so it's worth it's worth recognizing kind of what are our interactions and what are we doing to to enhance re- risk and what can we do to prevent risk.
1: So with this coronavirus uh, and COVID nineteen, which comes from it, has it been determined how it specifically got its start? And um, and also, how, as far as what you and uh, other researchers know, how is it different uh, from other coronaviruses or zoo- zoonoses? Zoonoses—that's another term. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. And zoonoses are just any any zoonoses. pathogen that can go from an animal to humans. It's sort of our definition, um, and it's a big group. It's a big group of pathogens. Um, not all of them cause emerge are emerging infectious diseases. Um, but coronaviruses are an interesting group. So that's a, that's a really huge group of viruses. It's a, it's a very diverse group of viruses. Um, mostly um, coronaviruses infect the animals on the planet. Um, there's only a handful, um, six, no seven, that infect people um, and, and so um, so we, you know, as veterinarians, we think about coronaviruses a lot. There's a lot of um, a lot of different viruses that we seek to control in cattle and poultry and, and, and other species. Um, but we are especially now talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, and um, that that is kind of a, 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 a tale that I think had some forewarning um, for the for the six different viruses that people get, um, uh, quite a number of them have actually transmitted um, from bats, where bats are likely the original reservoir, and spilled over to infect people. Um, And we had a SARS epidemic uh, back in 2002 that was a virus that emerged from the bat population. Um, There were were animals being sold in markets, and it specifically was recognized um, by colleagues doing a ton of research in this area, that there were um, a civet cat that was infected and there were animals in the market that were infected with this virus and it went on to um, become transmitted to humans and and infected people.
1: I should um, ask, and- what is a civet cat? C-I-V-E-T cat? Yeah, what type of cat exactly. is that? Yeah, exactly.
2: It's it's a wild cat that is um, that is um, quite often brought into um, wildlife markets and um, and has a role in the culture um, and, and sort of a taste for that it's also a very heavily farmed cat um, and it's used to make coffee and all kinds of things that um, that, that you know are done in other cultures and um, and so yeah it's, it's it's just a wild cat that's native to that area it's, it's both um farmed and it's it's captured in the wild and um and there was certainly a link there um potentially as an intermediate host that 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 species played in emergence of the first SARS and we kind of dodged a bullet with that one there was a lot of public health measures that and countries worked really closely together to um to prevent that epidemic from getting too widespread Um, but but this epidemic that started um in China in a seafood market in Wuhan most likely um, the recent evidence that's getting pieced together there is that um, the first cases, the cl- first cluster of cases had had almost everybody had a, a lot of contact with um, that market and vendors at that market. And, um, and there's still pieces of the puzzle that are coming together as far as the different species. The most closely related virus um, is from horseshoe bats that have been sampled in Southern China. Um, and that virus is 96% similar to the current um, SARS-CoV-2, um, that's causing this COVID-19 out- outbreak, and and that virus um, is is just the most closely related one. There's viruses that are probably out there that we just haven't detected yet, that um, that are most likely in bats. And bats have a huge diversity of of these beta coronaviruses. So these viruses that that basically um, have a habit of spilling over and infecting people. And so um, so this is this is similar to what happened with the first SARS epidemic and, and has happened again now. And there was probably an intermediate host that played a role. We just, you know, you need a lot of active surveillance in the animal population, in the wild animal populations to pull together all these genetic clues um, from related, related viruses and figure out um, figure out what happened. And that typically takes um, years of, of research um, and, until we get all the answers.
0: Hi, this is Caleb Clark executive producer of California Groundbreakers podcasts. We're working on more New Normal in California podcasts literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast page, or on the Donate tab on the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Also, if you know of a Californian doing some innovative thing during this pandemic time who should be talking about it with us on this podcast, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org to give us information about who, where, and why so we can get in touch. We're always looking to get the word out about Groundbreakers who people should know about and support.
1: Speaking of research, I wanted to ask you about this study that you published just a week ago. And I know, Christine, you said you're not a rock star, but before we started recording, when we talked about the study, it's it's a study that she – I don't know if you shopped around, but apparently some – some research journals had uh, said, "Oh no, thanks, it's boring," yeah. or um, and then it's now it's not that exciting. Yeah,
2: <laughs> we can't get anyone to review your study. <laughs> it's so
1: boring. Yeah. But as is, uh, you know, as we say, timing is everything. Um, it was accepted by a very prestigious journal, the Pre- uh, Proceedings of the Royal Society B, published in, in out of London. Um, and you said that it is the most downloaded study uh that they've ever had i think they've been around since 1905 definitely 1900 or so so this is the most most downloaded study that has been published in the proceedings of the royal society b so i think that's a rock star <laughs> rock star move but what is this new if you could just give us a new uh, a summary of this study your findings you know that you that were notable uh and that we should know about as you know um as individuals and uh, yep. uh, uh public health officials
2: yeah, I mean, thank you. Um, that's a big compliment. Don't quote me on the number of downloads. I, I think one of our co-authors picked that up. Um, but but yeah, I, it is getting a lot of attention. we We actually started the study five years ago. We were really interested in informing on pandemic threats and how to minimize pandemics. And this this study really takes a global view of spillover risk. And what we did that was different, we looked at all the viruses that have spilled over from mammals to humans. So we we had there were over 142 viruses that we could include in the study where there was enough data on sort of where which mammals those those viruses had been reported in. And we linked that data to trends in species abundance um, and, the, and, and looked at the likelihood that those different mammals have shared viruses with us based on the number of viruses that we've gotten from them as has been reported in literature. And we worked with the, um, the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, um, their red list of species and they, they actually make a huge effort um, and have worked for, for decades to, to understand species declines and, and, and identify which species are really declining declining rapidly and are threatened with extinction. And if they're threatened, what are the reasons underlying that? So what, what, are, what are the causes for those declines? And they also have kind of some basic measures of, of global abundance and, and whether species are increasing in abundance or decreasing in abundance. And so in bringing all that data together, we were able to really start to understand, and this gets back to my very early interest when I first got into the field as an epidemiologist, like looking at these broad patterns and what, are the, what is it telling us about how this has happened and what can we use to inform uh, about pandemics and emerging infectious diseases? And, um, and what we found, which, which is kind of something that we sort of expected and seems very intuitive, but we finally had some evidence to back that up, which is that disease transmission has been especially common from species that are highly abundant and, and either have stable population numbers or actually increasing in population numbers. And so we actually brought in domesticated species and looked at the different viruses that they have. And as we expected, disease transmission has been has been common from domesticated species. And, and at the species level, domesticated animals have the most viruses um, for the most part. They're in the top 10. They, they overpopulate the top 10 species with the most viruses. And that's, that's because of the the very close relationship that we've had. And we knew a lot of our our zoonotic viruses come from them. But we also looked at among wildlife, specifically um, what's happening with their population trends and how is that informing on the number of viruses that they have. And there are species of of wildlife that are also increasing in in population abundance. Um, There's actually over 50 of them that that are least concerned as far as extinction risk there's there's really no concern about them going extinct they're actually increasing in numbers and those are species that are super adaptable globally abundant species and they're actually increasing in numbers despite major human modification of the habitat and and part of our idea behind doing the study and, and focusing on mammals was you know obviously humans have massively changed the landscape um, we know that we've modified the habitat for, um, for our own well-being and, it, and, it, and its brought about huge gains economically um, as far as our health but it, but it is a very modified habitat and I was just really curious how are people still coming into contact with wildlife like what how are these viruses being directly transmitted And it looks like those viruses that, that are coming from animals that, that are very globally abundant are these very adaptable species that readily share their habitat with us. So should well, such shoes. as some spe- species of rodents that that cause um, a lot of the a lot of the pathogens that you mentioned early on. Um, you know, the, the black rat that causes plague, and 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 the house mouse that that actually causes um, some viruses that we worry about um, that cause um, pulmonary syndrome um, that from hantavirus. And so, um, so these some of these these animals have moved right in. They shelter with us. They depend on us for food. They actually go through boom and bust cycles um, based on how much access to food they can get um, with us. And so there's a lot of close contact, almost similar to the way we have with domesticated species. In fact, some people call them like sort of peri-domestic because um, they're not really that wild anymore. Um, and so that was an important finding, just saying, yep, for these species that are really common, we see a lot of viruses. Um, and that the risk kind of scales up with how common species are. Um, and then we had some really notable findings in terms of contact with wild animals that are more scarce. And I'd be happy to talk about
1: that as well. Well, I do have a couple questions uh, based on, on those results. And one of them is, um, well, in terms of livestock, I do have a California specific question for you. Yeah. Uh, UC Davis obviously is a very, very well known and respected for its, uh, School of Veterinary Medicine, and he had all the Central Valley kind of the testing ground, right? There's a lot of uh, cattle, dairy farms, um, poultry farms, and crop fields that could be home to uh, mice and rats and bats. So, when I was thinking about that, I thought, should we Californians who live near these areas, should we be concerned uh, about zoonotic spillover?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the 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 livestock veterinarians in California are among the best in the world, and they keep a very close eye on diseases that livestock get. In fact, they work really hard to eradicate diseases in livestock and poultry in this state. Um, and, and I think really sort of spearhead best practices and how to minimize disease transmission within herds. And flocks, and um, and that goes an extremely long way to keeping us safe. And and that's you know, uh, veterinarians have all along played a really big role in food safety um, because these are basically zoonotic diseases again that come from animals to humans through our food. Um, and they do a tremendous job making sure that um, that our food industry is very well protected from diseases, and that includes making sure that there's not wild animals, rodents, bats, other species that are coming into contact with the with livestock and, and the, the, um, they're, they're basically protected from disease transmission um, and we keep diseases out as well as um, keep a close eye on what diseases are, are in the populations. Um, so we really have no concern um, here in the US and I think um, there's a lot of best practices that could be shared. Um, I think disease transmission from from animals to humans, especially to livestock keepers, um, especially some of the poorest livestock farmers in the world, um, is, a, is a major disease burden. And I think that's that's really something that that we can infirm on and, and, and share technology around because, um, you know, food security is a really big issue and livestock production is growing rapidly in the rest of the world. And and finding ways to keep that food source really safe, and, and make sure that there's no emerging infectious diseases, because you know some bat dropped a piece of fruit and pigs ate it, um, is going to be really important in the future. So thank you for asking that.
1: Y- yes, uh, I I just thought that was interesting. We live in California, and we are surrounded by a lot of animals, domesticated and and wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then speaking of domesticated animals as well. Uh, I think last week it was, I read about how uh, at least one tiger, maybe two tigers in the Bronx Zoo, uh, tested positive coronavirus, and my Twitter feed went crazy about, oh my God, do I have to give up my cat? Uh, am I infecting my pets and should I give them away? And will there be concern about all these pets being dumped at, at shelters or on the road because there's concern about coronavirus? So I was wondering in terms of zoonotic spillover between our, our, our pets, um, is there concern? You know, what do you tell people who, who are wondering, you know, about that connection between uh, cats, dogs, um, and humans?
2: Yeah, yeah. And we, we love our pets. And, and then it, I think it's really important. We want to take good care of them. Um, there's a, That's actually been an extremely rare event. I think the Bronx Zoo and the tiger was 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 only detected because of the super sharp veterinarians that that work there. We still don't know how the tiger got infected. Um, but, really? but after that, yeah, yeah, it's still a mystery. Um, but it definitely was infected um from from a human somehow somewhere. Um, and they're of course having a really disastrous epidemic in in the Bronx right now with COVID-19. Um, and and so there's a high number of people that, that are infected in that region. Um, um, but but as far as pets, there's just it's been extremely rare. There's a couple dogs, a couple cats um in other parts of the world that that have been infected. And and it, it's it's a hundred percent been people giving it to their to their pets. And so um so people are getting COVID-19 from other people. We should be clear. There's, there's the potential that you could infect your pet with really, really close contact, a lot of really close contact, which some of us have. And so I think just, you know, abundance of conscience best practices is to try to minimize um, contact with your pets. If you have COVID-19 and you're sick, it is a zoonotic disease. <laughs> and these things go both ways. Um, but, but, but people are going to get COVID-19 from people. And, and if we have more questions on the on dogs and cats, um, the small veterinarians at UC Davis are really well-poised, and they have a ton of information up on our website that goes into a lot of detail about what people can expect in terms of um, COVID-19 if, if they're sick with that and, and
1: what might happen with their pets. And we'll put that link on our podcast. Great, thank you. Uh, Anthony Fauci, up at the top, uh, I saw that you also have a... I guess, a federal connection with a program that you work at or maybe are even in charge of called PREDICT. And I read that its mission is tasked with detecting new and potentially dangerous infectious diseases and also helping labs worldwide to stop emerging pandemic threats around the world. And that uh, PREDICT has been getting funding for the past 10 years, I believe. Um, But its funding wasn't renewed. I think last year it was announced uh, you're, you're not going to get funding, and it's going to be shut down March 2020, which was last month. But of course, global pandemic happened, and I'm wondering what is now happening with Predict. It seems like that's a very important thing, and will it still be around? What What are you? What's What's the news with uh, your efforts at Predict and and other efforts like that around yeah. the world?
2: Yeah, great, great question. I mean, Predict is 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 such. Um, and, and a fantastic project. Um, it went for 10 years. We started, um, I believe, in 2009. Um, it goes on five-year cycles, just just how those awards are funded. And PREDICT was part of a really big program in the Bureau of Global Health um, at USAID. And, and basically, they had big programs that were funding emerging pandemic threat preparedness um, internationally. So working with colleagues at the WHO, which everyone's heard about now, as well as um, the sort of similar one for animal health FAO and predict was kind of their wildlife human um, program that worked in the field. And, and what we did, they, they really should have called us insight is what is what um, the program leads over, uh, over at USAID say now, um, because we were really out there working in high risk animal um, human disease interfaces. So we were going where um, we think disease transmission is most likely to occur. We worked with um, with colleagues that implemented the project in 28 different countries in Africa and Asia in the last in the last five years of the project. So we worked in market settings. We worked with wildlife hunters, and we worked with communities that are really dependent on animals, especially wildlife, for their livelihood. And so there were major considerations um, in, in in us, you know, figuring out together how to, to implement the project. And, and one of the things that I'm most proud of, so UC Davis had a really big role in it. There's a huge team of people at, at UC Davis at the One Health Institute that, that kind of uh, led the project. And then we had amazing consortium partners across the U.S., including EcoHealth Alliance and the Wildlife Conservation Society and um, Smithsonian Institute. And, and our colleagues worked really to come up with best practices and how to to safely sample animals, wildlife, especially in the most ethical way, in the most, in the way that would most protect, um, the animal and people. Um, so we talked about biosafety, um, and it really went all the way from the field work to the lab work and, and really strengthened capabilities in working in, um, in pandemic preparedness in the countries that we worked with, you know, they were really engaged, felt like they had a huge role to play in pandemic preparedness. We together implemented what we call One Health surveillance. So essentially, essentially we brought sampling activities together for animals and humans, which, which really hasn't been done anywhere. And we had cross-trained One Health staff and scientists that that worked that way together across the animal and human dimension. And we also gathered behavioral data so we could get insight on cultural and social demographic issues that are gonna impede disease mitigation efforts. And and that project just went to its natural end. We knew the project was ending. It ended in 2019 in in September. And um, USAID um, just wisely extended us. And so they they were already extending us um, knowing that they wanted to sort of um, Continue ties with the organizations um, that had spearheaded this work. And then just this month, they gave us um, emergency funding because of the pandemic. So we got a big emergency supplement, as many um, federally funded projects are doing. And our emergency supplement is going to be used to, to essentially help um, countries, partner countries, um, where we have colleagues that are working in that space um, do early detection for COVID-19. So we're, 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 we're helping equip them and doing sort of technology transfer for sort of the best practices in what's working really well um, for detection of COVID-19. And what's been so amazing about this project, which always is, is the, is the network of people. So these scientific colleagues that just readily help each other out across boundaries, um, They're collegial now. They know each other. They have everybody on speed dial, and we get to talk to them, and we learn from them, and they're going to probably learn from us about how we've handled this pandemic and, and some of the really hard lessons we've learned in this country as far as what needs to happen for social distancing. So we're poised, and we're going to be talking to them tomorrow and the next day and the day after. And, um, and really work with, with our One Health team on informing their governments on, on sort of what response is needed. And, and hopefully we can all, as we move through this, um, have lessons learned so we don't have to all learn everything from scratch.
1: Do you think now it'll be easier for countries to uh, coordinate efforts along those lines especially now we're all in it together uh, with this global pandemic Uh, so with efforts like predict and getting more efforts like predict started and continued and funded do you think that it will be easier now that we've all you know we've all experienced what could happen if it's if it's not that there are things like predict
2: yeah, I mean, I, I certainly hope so, and there and there's certainly a future for Predict, and, and and I think USAID is actively planning ways to to continue that work, and have always been um, working in that space, and and their their pandemic sort of um, scope will continue absolutely, um, and and I think they're really an important player in that space because the way that they operate, you know, they're they're really um, winning the hearts and the minds, um, and and they're really a well trusted organization that operates sort of seamlessly in other countries, and and they understand that that capacity for disease detection, especially for emerging infectious diseases, has to happen where these diseases are most likely to emerge, and that every country needs this basic, it's a basic human right to be able to have excellent access to healthcare and have um, disease detection in those countries, and we're only going to be as strong as our weakest link. So, so similar to you know, how the military operates and they worry about you know, certain states that are unstable, if, if, if certain countries are, are not stable on their disease detection, um, we are all basically that same lowest common denominator. And we're gonna see that play out with this pandemic as this virus starts to go through um, lower and middle income countries um, and countries are going to grapple just like we have at the US um, to be able to manage disease detection and, um, and the response effort. And, and USAID has a huge role to play in, in strengthening that sector. And, and I think the global communities are more poised to work together than ever. Um, the, the emergence of this virus from China and data sharing and, and notification, early notification of what's happening, has never been more expedited. And scientists are more collegial than ever. Almost every scientist that works on infectious diseases has pivoted to this topic to, to race for um, improved medicine and vaccines um, that, that can help battle this uh, this pandemic. And, and that's happening internationally. And the, and the collegiality and the information sharing internationally has never been better. So that is the silver lining.
1: That, that is, a, that's very heartening. So I have one last question for you. And I I guess it's a post-pandemic question. Um, the first part of this question is actually a, a question from one of a, one of our groundbreakers members who wrote in, uh, Jasmine Foraton. She she had this question: Everyone is waiting for this to go away, and go away is in quotes. But isn't that an unrealistic expectation that it will just go away? What does that even mean or look like? Um, so once this pandemic is over, and I think this is where I'm going to add part two, what can we do, you know, individually? Obviously, we talked about countries and how they they can coordinate efforts, but us individually too, especially, you know, when we think about the, the movie Contagion and, and just how those actions, you know, that we're involved with uh, can spread to things. What can we do to stop zoonotic spillover? And how should we consider interactions with wildlife going forward? Animals yeah. and wildlife. Yeah,
2: I mean that's a really great question. I think I mean Jasmine's question is what is on everybody's mind, as you said. Um, it's a concern. This virus, you know, is 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 at a the largest scale we've we've really seen for pandemics in in certainly our lifetimes. Um, and and there are coronaviruses that circulate seasonally. They just happen to cause mild respiratory um, disease, so they're the common cold, and we don't pay much attention to them, but but if there's any lessons to, to be learned from that, um, certainly there's, um, there's not a high expectation that this virus is just going to disappear. Um, and we really need to have excellent containment and mitigation. And, and I think we should be really proud of the effort that we did in California for social distancing in a very calm and civilized way. You know, early on, we didn't need we didn't need a lot of people to be infected or evidence that there's, you know, this outbreak is going to really be catastrophic. We just sort of saw the writing on the wall based on science and, and we took our place to individually do a huge effort to minimize spread. And that has really worked. It's been so impressive. And I think um, along the lines of, of best practices in this kind of situation, and it's really the only tool we have in our toolkit um, until the, the there's a huge immune population where where a lot of the population is now immune to the virus, we're all susceptible, and so we really don't know sort of what is the exit strategy. I mean, this virus is only really four months old; it's a it's a brand new baby virus that we're still learning a ton about, and um, and we need to figure out, I think, ways to achieve immunization, ideally through vaccination, and and that has. You know, sort of been the hero that's come in um, to to save the world before, and 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 I think um, the researchers that are that are doing that and working around the clock um, are are we really have a lot to um, to bank on, so that that can help um, help us get out of this mess. And that's
1: and actually I that, <laughs> that that, no, Sorry,
2: that said- Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. You, yeah, I can't resist it. Um, you had brought up, you know, so sort of this, this zoonotic virus and, and, and the situation we're in. And I think that's one thing I really didn't get to speak to that I is really near and dear to my heart and, and, and why, one of the reasons why I undertook this study and, and just getting back to that, that proceedings um, study, um, our data also looked at um, animals that, that were increasingly rare and, and for animals that were increasingly rare, we found really two processes that were underlying dis- disease spillover from, from those species. And, and those were animals that had been exploited over time by people um, through hunting and capture and the wildlife trade. Um, and that involves a lot of very close contact with animals. And that really facilitates disease transmission. Just, you know, just as we see through respiratory droplets and contact, um, direct contact with animals, um, that, that is really a practice that we know is, is now very high risk. It was the cause of the first SARS epidemic. It was probably the cause of the second one. And, and when we looked at all the viruses stacked up over time, species that, are, that have been exploited and their numbers driven down to near extinction by people shared more viruses with us so we have a conservation concern and a public health concern when we think about splitting wildlife and how we treat wildlife on the planet and and then our findings also were, were was, and this was a huge surprise to us um, because we looked at all the different reasons why species are in decline and and the other reason that we found that was really closely re- linked to increased spillover risk was species that were in decline because of habitat loss and habitat destruction and habitat fragmentation and those species had a higher virus shared with people probably because they're living in areas with a lot of human encroachment there's a lot higher chance of coming in contact with people but also because that habitat loss kind of like the way the contagion movie showed it at the end the habitat loss causes species to move and when you have members of the population moving into other different members of the population and getting into close contact we have the same situation that we have in this country with the pandemic. So before we all stayed in place, we were all giving diseases to each other because we were hopping on a flight to here, or hopping on a flight to there and moving around. Wildlife are no different and disease dynamics and wildlife are really no different. And so, so habitat change causes animals to move around in a way that increases the risk of, of, of disease um, transmission. And so, so we really need to be thoughtful and inform people that are in close contact with wildlife in that marginal habitat and predicted a really big effort um, to inform people, especially around the bat risk. So we have a, we have this um, document that was made by the Consortium for Predict called Living Safely with Bats. And we empower people who live in communities where they just have a lot of contact with bats. Maybe there's bats in their home or bats around their livestock facilities. And so we inform on how they can best do that. And we've translated that into many different languages. And then we also really need to be thoughtful about, about the situation where we have wild animals in the wildlife trade. Because we know animals that brought into captivity wild animals and held in very dense conditions and there's many different species close together that those that's really pushing evolution into a zoonotic virus emergence perfect storm because these animals are stressed they're together in close dense habitat um and 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 everything we know from domesticated species and even ourselves we know that those situations sort of breed um, higher rates, they breed epidemics, higher rates of, of disease transmission. And so um, that's a real concern. And I think that is something we can do for our future.
1: Yeah, that sounds like those are two efforts the wildlife trade, and then in terms of like habitat, seems like yeah. those are going to be two more prominent uh, areas that get a lot more attention and hopefully support. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think we've learned a lot. Well, <laughs> I definitely learned a lot uh, talking with you, Dr. Johnson. Christine Quitter Johnson, thank you so much. Um, Thank you for all the efforts that you've done, the research, and congratulations on your rock star study. And uh, we look forward to reading about future research that you put out there for us.
2: Thank you, Vanessa. It was a real pleasure talking to you.
0: You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This episode of The New Normal in California with Christine Cruder-Johnson of UC Davis was recorded on April 14th, 2020. Thanks to Dr. Johnson for taking time out of her pandemic time schedule to talk with us. Thanks also to Kat Carlin at UC Davis for her assistance. Always, thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, Consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about how Californians are coping with the new normal. You can do that as well as keep tabs on our upcoming podcast episodes, our live events, whatever it's safe to do them again, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.